Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. This is your host, Rich Helpy. We're glad that you're joining our fiercely nonpartisan discussion about policies, policies to meet the problems and challenges of the day and to seize the opportunities of the moment. Common Bridge is available on most podcast networks. It's available on YouTube TV and, of course, at richardhelpy.com. Please register for free. Today on the Common Bridge, we are again back to discuss healthcare, specifically healthcare and healthcare policy in the United States. And today we welcome the president of Action Benefits, Mr. Carl Albrecht. Carl, welcome to the Common Bridge. So glad that you take some time for us today. Great to be with you here today. Mr. Albrecht brings us his experience as an advisor to and provider of employee benefits to many companies. His work in developing technologies to manage the health insurance business in America is probably something that many in our listening audience have actually touched and not known. And he's also had an intense personal medical experience. Carl, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. And of course, your full bio will be on our website, richardhelpy.com. What were your early days like? Are you from Michigan or from elsewhere? Yeah, I grew up in a small town called Chelsea, Michigan, which is the same town actor Jeff Daniels from and lives in. And But that's where I was raised. I uh, went to Eastern Michigan University. I always kind of knew I was going into the insurance business because that's what my dad had done, more on the employee fringe benefits, which now we call health insurance or health care. I started working with a company called New York Life and did that for a number of years and then had an opportunity to join at my dad's company after uh, a period of time and enjoyed it. Uh, it, was a, it was a great fit. He did more of the retail, had a big book of business, and then we had a real big opportunity that came up with Blue Cross. They'd never worked with independent agents, and this was really kind of looking at the bringing entrepreneurship into not only delivery, but service of con consumers. And I think that's probably one of the missing pieces that I keep seeing in the healthcare is, is, is people are not looking at it from the consumer standpoint. And a few years ago, the, the catchphrase was consumerism. Then all of a sudden, it seemed to swing hard. And now if you see all the marketing, all the technology, all the great, brilliant ideas are all automated call center, computer this, FAQ that. When you start looking at how much people are paying for healthcare and you start thinking what they're doing to them, I think that's probably one of the areas that the movement with health reform has really become an issue for people. And, and, and I see it. I do this for a living. I tell that to people all the time. It's like, I do this for a living. And man, it, it could not be more confusing. You take a look at healthcare and you say insurance companies are unbelievable bureaucracies and they kind of have to be just by the nature of what they do. But and then if you look at it and you say, what's what's the worst bureaucracy you could ever think of other insurance companies? Well, it's federal government. <laughs> well, two of them are got together and they, they have this new child called health reform. <laughs> and that's what we're all living through right now. And in some ways it's working. In other ways, it's, it's not. It didn't have buy-in to begin with. So you have one side fighting to the death to stop it. And the other, you know, pushing as a badge of honor that we got to push it through. And it's stuck. 
We plan on diving into all of that today. And look, in the interest of disclosure and full transparency, I again want to note, I believe that the era of employer-sponsored healthcare just needs to come to an end. It doesn't make any sense to me and many others that the way people are employed these days and the way the risk pools are formed. So I think we're going to have a great conversation. And I think we're going to really live up to the expectation of the brand promise of the Common Bridge. And that's where everyone will have something to disagree with. I think we're probably already there, but we're going to have some education and a great conversation. And and let's see if we can get to some policy ideas. And Carl, if you don't mind, before we get into your professional life, to the extent that you're willing to share with our audience, you've had some intense personal interaction with the medical system yourself. I had probably about as bad a diagnosis as you could ever expect to get as a person. I was told two years ago, almost to the day, they did biopsies on my pancreas and they confirmed it was pancreatic cancer. And, you know, up until that time, you know, you just knew that that's a death sentence. And I think if you you Google a symptom or you, you Google really what the outcomes are for that, it's not good. And so I'm probably the luckiest person you've ever met in your life um, just to be sitting here right now. When you look at the statistics, I have a legitimate shot at beating it. I have no illusions that that I am going to beat it. It's probably 50-50. And for me, that's phenomenal odds compared to the way it was. But the only potential cure is surgery. The cancer's, you know, one of its hallmarks is spreading and coming back. There's two really bad characteristics as well. And then it sits in an area that's so central to so many functions that your body performs, digestion, the functionality of your livers, uh, you know, that's typically where it'll go secondary is liver. It also has a tendency to go to lungs, which is an interesting one. So that whole area is just very challenging. And so the other part that makes it so deadly is so frequently it's caught when it's so far advanced. And that's where I got very lucky for some reason. It was in an area that it created symptoms and people always ask me what the symptoms and so I like to share those. The symptoms I had, it just felt like an upset stomach high up in my stomach, but it didn't change. And it was day after day, it was exactly the same. And about 10 days later, I was like, you know, something's not right here. Cause you know, usually you go to sleep and it feels better. Sure. Yeah, it just didn't, didn't change. And so, um, I had a follow-up with my doctor for some blood pressure and I said, you know, this something's bugging me. And she sent me for an ultrasound and they said, you know, it's really inflamed. We can't really see, but there's something there. Did an MRI. They kind of gave me the same thing. And so Dr. Gaith, who was my uh, GI guy, was just phenomenal. He said, you know what? He goes, and he, I think he knew looking at my blood chemistry, I think he, he knew something serious was going on that something was blocking something and you wouldn't pick it up unless you had experience in that. And and, um, he did the biopsy and six of them were clean. The last two showed pancreatic cancer. Now by some fluke, and this is the part where the healthcare system is kind of interesting. I had already been going to Mayo Clinic because I had some back issues and I thought, you know, it'd just be good to be in the system and get a good second opinion. If, you know, if it gets back surgery, it's just so tenuous as well. So I was already in their system. And just by a fluke, it turns out they're literally best in the nation for pancreatic cancer. My brother-in-law, they literally saved his life about eight years ago from colon cancer. He was 38 and had a very large tumor and they resected that and he's literally cured. He's doing great. So in my case, you know, again, they can't perform miracles. It's usually not good news. In my case, he said, let's put you on chemo, see what happens. So I did Volferinex, which is a really awesome awful chemo that for some, again, unbelievable reason, I actually did pretty good with. I never lost my hair. I I, I lost it from other things, but not from that. 
that was good. I did a second round of another type of chemo. It absolutely beat the hell out of the cancer. I had to stop a couple of times for, you know, this or that, but in general, you know, you just plod through it. The problem I had was some circulatory issues. I, I have an artery that's not supposed to be where it was. It was in the, is in the pancreas. And you learn all this amazing stuff. But one of the other things, the hallmarks of, of pancreatic cancer, and part of the reason it travels is it's not really good at developing its own vascular system. So what it does is it finds an artery to attach to and wrap around. And it found this artery that goes to my liver, which should have been out of my pancreas, but was actually in it. And it was wrapped around it. And so the doctor's looking and says, look, he goes, you know, he goes, I can, I, he goes, typically I can take this out. He goes, but in your case, this artery is on top of being in the wrong spot. He goes, it's super narrow. And I don't know if I got enough artery to attach. And if I can't attach it, your liver is going to, going to die because it feeds half your liver. So long story short, the, the um, chemo has pulled it back from the artery. He was able to do the resection. For some reason, they were they said they were able to do it. I've developed additional blood flow, which now it's not even an issue anymore. But he had to take my pancreas out because that seam would have been in your pancreas. And he was worried about the digestive juices um, breaking down that seam. So Long and short, you know, he says, look, you know, you come back every three months. We check it. I've gone a, a year. I go, I go back the end of this month. And the first two years are the scariest. Uh, they say that's the highest likelihood of it coming back. But we'll see what happens. But the Mayo system is is stunning. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And, and you look at it from the standpoint of outcomes, efficiency, use of resources, it just, it hits on all those very well. And in, in the efficiency part, it's so helpful to you as an individual that you can have an appointment in the morning and then they'll fill up three more appointments in the day with other areas. And by tomorrow, you know what's going on. By the day after, you're getting treatment potentially for what's going on. It moves you so quickly, compresses the timelines. You're dealing with the same person inputting it. And so again, it's dealing with the system, but it's it's a much more even integrated system you see it, you know, that, that I've seen and, and I've been in other parts of the healthcare system as well. And so really, really well done. I think they kind of take the best of both worlds. Um, the most difficult part, you know, anybody can really get in there. The most difficult part though is you know, can you physically get there um, for treatment? They have Scottsdale, Jacksonville, yeah. of course, Rochester, Minnesota. And I, I, first, I pray that you will be one of the fortunate few that survive this because there are miracles done every yeah. day within the healthcare yeah. system. And when people talk about cost and they talk about reform, they often don't talk about the advances that we've made and right. the opportunities for cures for things that you know, were unsolvable not very many years ago. And this is something I do think we need to keep in mind that how do we have a system that can be as good or nearly as good as the Mayo every place? So by way of example, one of our recent guests, Nate Kaufman, talked about the Mayo Clinic and how Walmart was sending their employees that had cancer diagnoses to Mayo and finding that and oftentimes they were being misdiagnosed. So I... I Love the story you're telling about the precision of diagnostics, the integration amongst the various healthcare practitioners, and the very latest in treatment. And you know, you're a pretty sophisticated healthcare guy, but you're not a clinician, but you're able to explain what's going on with you. And that's that's where healthcare should be. Now, 
Carl, most people get their health care through their benefit plans. So you've been doing employee benefits for quite a while now. And so that involves a plan design and, and employees using the group plan, if I'm not mistaken. It does. And we work primarily with independent agents who, who work with companies and, and mainly in the small group markets. So small companies that aren't particularly sophisticated in terms of having an HR department. A lot of times they really, they really rely on their agent to give them the background. And the agent's not an employee of Blue Cross or Health Alliance plan or priority. They're, they're independent. And so you're successful as an agent by keeping your customer happy. And to me, that's one of the pieces that is missing in so much, and not only reform, but looking at healthcare, it's making sure incentives and people are motivated appropriately. And, and in that case, that's, that's a perfect description even of capitalism is you get, you get paid for giving the client what they want. Your job is to keep them happy. So that works pretty darn well. We work with those agents in terms of developing things like technology. It helps them um, uh, provide them to the small group uh, provider. Um, but also service backup. You know, they can't be experts in everything. So we end up being the expert in the small group area for them. Um, and they'll come to us with more detailed questions. The basic stuff they know, you know, they know inside and out and they know, you know, the marketplace and that's their, that's the strength. So our job is really trying to, trying to make sure that those, those employees are getting the value out of what they're paying for and the cert and the employers getting the, the service that they deserve for what they're paying for. Let me comment on that just a little bit, because I've been the employer and I've been out buying the plan and it's a, a difficult game because, you know, oftentimes the uh, insurer wants to look at the claim history and then up our premium for the next year based on what happened before. Well, the odds of that happening again are really low, but they're really just trying to recoup uh, their cost of what they had to do to settle our claims. But they are trying to get you as a client too. Well, they are, but, but ultimately as the employer, I'm not the client. Because it's it's the employees and their families, and all of them have unique needs. Right. And while we offered choice and we offered you know variety of plans for you know based on where people were living and what their personal circumstances were, there was always a few outliers that we just didn't have the right plan for certain of our people. And to me, that's one of the downsides of employer sponsored healthcare right. is that. I can't meet the needs of all my customers, my employees, and also that every year they have to change. So we have people, you know, the vast majority, very happy with the plan. And then, you know, we have to go put it out for a bid again and we change. And then there's all those games that, that go on in there. And again, the information exchange is very difficult moving, you know, within a plan and then you know, among the plans. You've done some things with the understanding the benefits of technology and the benefits of moving information around. And you were quite a pioneer at the time, if uh, memory serves me correctly, or the what I've read serves me correctly. I didn't know you then. Tell me a little bit about your take on the benefits of the information technology and the benefits of the information flow uh, from your seat helping independent health insurance agents. You know, again, you look at an industry where technology can have an incredible impact is healthcare and insurance in particular. 
And in particular, when I started getting involved, there literally was no technology. And it's almost funny thinking it was, it was carbon paper and Selectica typewriters. You're aging yourself there, Carl. Shh, I, I know it's pretty that. scary, isn't it? When, when, you, when you actually think about it, I mean, the smartest thing I ever did is I took typing classes in high school. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant because you went right onto the keyboard. Indeed. But you started looking at it and you started looking at these functions and, you know, I'm not a fan of doing repetitive tasks and stuff like that. And you look at it and you go, if I can automate that, it's probably a pretty crappy job to begin with. And it is. They're just like ro robot type functions that, you know, so it's simple things like addressing labels and, and you know, uh, you know, uh, you know things, things of that nature that, that, you know, we started with. And then it was making sure forms were, were electronic. So you had records, you could look back. So when you called, and they were all service driven. When you called, I could find your record. I didn't have to go find a file that might be out. I could actually go online. It can exist in multiple places concurrently. And I think that's where the value of, you know, you start looking at the impact you have. And so we looked at that technology that not only had an impact on, on the consumer, but the, you know, the agent who was, who was required to do the service and made their job easier and delivered the ultimate value to all of them. And so yeah, you made some, some, I did some great points about the consumer driven side uh, of healthcare in your opening remarks. And it is an industry that hasn't had to go find a customer and it was really passive. In fact, not too many years ago, you didn't exist until you presented at a healthcare facility. Then, oh, who are you? What's your name? What's your address? What's your what's your insurance? What's your subscriber number? So there is a improvement. We're nowhere near where we need to be. We think about what you know Amazon or your grocery store knows about you and your buying habits versus what your healthcare provider knows. Still a long way to go. But you also mentioned in your opening comments about big bureaucracies and. Mm -hmm. Bureaucracies are big because they try to fill a lot of roles. Right. And there's always a debate about what's the right role for private bureaucracy or a public bureaucracy. So if you thought about the role for the private health insurers in today's healthcare, I mean, what would it be? Are we oftentimes they don't take actuarial risk because they're just administering a plan, but it maybe as administrator, they're earning their keep, price negotiator, uh, you know, plan designer or service provider. What should we be asking the Blue Crosses and the Anthems and the Uniteds and, and, and all the smaller insurers to do today to serve the nation's healthcare? I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's a great, great question because I, I think one of the things, again, when you look at health reform, um, one of the things that kept looking at was your cost of doing business and the financing mechanism. To me, neither one of those are the problem. Those are not going up at double digits. Those are going down at double digits. But that's what everyone's focused on as well. The insurance companies, this and we need to find it. You know, even your, your, your comments about, um, you, you know, them looking back. Well, the only reason they're looking back is because they have actuarial tables that you can wipe all that out and just say the feds will guarantee X. And then they don't need actuarial tables anymore. Now they're just pure administrators. The federal government, both Medicare, Medicaid, uh, state government, they hire the insurance to do tremendous numbers of these functions because they're very, very, very good at it. And they're very inexpensive. And so even though they're paid a lot of money, they're doing massive volumes. And I think, you know, that's one of the other things when they start looking at whether it's insurers. I mean, you know, a few years ago, I remember hearing people were talking about, well, do you know how much the president of X company makes? And, you know, X insurance company. They go, yeah, he makes a lot of money. Now take how much he makes and divide it by the total number of members per month. 
and it's like 15 cents a month per member. So it's you're not moving the needle. You're focusing on the wrong problem. The problem is, is the cost of healthcare is going up at double digits. And why is that? And, and that's what we got to take a look at is saying, you know, why, why when the hospital comes back, why when the doctor comes back and, and clearly they're having costs increase. So what, what is so unique that is driving these costs so dramatically higher in those areas? And, and in my case, you know, there wasn't, um, you know, I'll give you an example of Mayo. I had radiation treatment before I had, had surgery. You can submit that and which I did. And it's going to take a period of time for the insurance company to come back. And, and I hate to say it, I'm part of the system. Rightfully, they rejected it. Then the provider put an appeal into and did a provider appeal and said, look, we're doing pretty advanced stuff here at, at Mayo. We'd like you to reconsider it. They rejected it a second time. And I'm not necessarily saying they shouldn't have rejected a second time. I am now going to be doing a personal appeal that, that falls as a member appeal. So and they may end up rejecting. I'm going to have to pay that cost myself. If you're not in a position to do that, Mayo Clinic may not be an option for you. I don't know how to fix that, and I don't know if there is a way to fix that. I'm not sure you want to fix that either because somebody's going to be taking the lead and somebody's going to be paying, and it may end up being being for naught, um, and that's why the insurance company doesn't pay for it. But that's the role the feds play. They should be saying this should be covered. This should. If you tell me as an insurance company how much uh, what what should be covered – I can tell you exactly what the costs are. I know precisely what they are to the penny. My, my middle son is an actuary for, for Blue Cross. He understands this implicitly. I mean, they're, they're very, very good at that. But the minute you start saying that you're taking risk, now I got to calculate that risk and I have to build in factors for that. So I think you're making an argument about some of the downsides of the private insurance. So, and I'll again cite Nate Kaufman's commentary that why is something medically necessary if you're insured by... Uh, insurer A versus insurer B versus insurer C. It's either medically necessary or it's not medically necessary. There's a lot of things that don't lend themselves to coding. You know, the energy, the the age, the overall health versus the diagnosis and the proposed treatment plan. But we know that from your own description there that the incentive on the part of that claims paying organization, the insurance company in this case, they want to say no. And they know a number of people will give up on the first no, and and others will give up on the second. You're chosen to persevere. It seems like it's a rather cruel place to put a person that's already got their hands full. And the reason they, the insurance company doesn't have the right economics is because we don't have enough people in the pools. I love the statement um, I, and the way you framed it, that sounds correct, but, it, but it's incorrect. And I think part of it is this, they're on the front edge of, of treatment. So insurance companies don't pay for experimental, they don't pay for research, they pay for proven services. But there's no one group that says what it is and what it isn't. And that's where I think the feds can say that, is this is covered and this is not. Now, you fight insurance companies over who's best administering this co coverage. The feds aren't very good at that. The feds are terrible at that. So the feds need to be setting the rules and being umpires versus being umpires, players, judge, jury, which is what they're doing right now. And, and I think that's what creates part of the problem. So the insurance company itself, in terms of having it paid for, if you were, if the federal government was looking at that right now, I had the ability to appeal it. The answer would be no period, 
periods. Now, now that relieved me of any stress of having to think about it anymore, but I was able to get it done. And I think, uh, or I'm hoping I'll get it done, but, it, but at least I had the treatments. Um, but, but if the feds run it, the answer would be absolutely no, because one size fits all is how the feds, and that's why there's so many departments and so much, it's, it's, we got to be fair. We got to make sure everybody's treated exactly the same. But, but let me react to that. If the feds are saying what's in and what's not in, then in effect, there is no appeal because it lets one bureaucrat point to another bureaucrat and say, that's not something we're going to do. And one of the, I think, flaws in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and we'll get to talk about that in just a minute, is that there was not differentiation among plans because it was all dictated and prices were dictated. And with no market differentiation, you're not letting the consumer make choices for that consumer's situation. I don't know that, you know, moving everything to a federal platform or in fact, giving them the rule book and letting them make the call is the right way to go at all. But I think you also make an important point. Most people in health that are, aren't in healthcare don't understand what a fiscal intermediary does. So that when you're submitting a claim for Medicare, for example, it's going through an insurance company who has the ability to process the claim and pay the claim. Okay, that's what a fiscal intermediary does. Nobody would dispute that the, the insurance companies are really good at paying medical and hospitalization claims. Now, pharmaceuticals, not all that good at this point, and, and that's one of the flaws there. But at a broader level, Carl, policy level, does the tax-favored treatment of employer-sponsored healthcare makes sense today. Well, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is making healthcare more expensive right now. So it doesn't seem like um, taking taking that away. Um, I think one of the challenges you you know you, you try to do is find ways to try to consolidate, aggregate um, business, and, and at the employer level, that's been a good place because you're getting the social security information, you're going over the other benefits. I want to attract employees to my firm by giving good benefits. Is that, is that legitimate? I, I, you know, to me, I think it is to say, I'm going to give better benefits and better vacation policy. Let me unwrap that just for a second. So you and I are neighbors. Okay. We live right next door to each other. In fact, let's just say we're in the same apartment building with the exact same floor plan, paying the exact same rent. And I work for employer B and you work for employer A. And your employer says, you know, we're, we want to really give a grand plan and it costs $25,000. And that's your employee benefit. And you pay zero tax on that compensation. And my employer is a little tighter. And they say, yeah, you know, you know, you don't need that much. And I get a very skimpy plan that costs $12,000. You just got $13,000 of tax-free money where I have to go into the market and make up that difference. And to your point about adding cost, what I would propose is this. We tax those benefits like the compensation they are. There was one change you could make in healthcare. I tax the benefits today. And here's why. All right, first of all, that provision in the tax code was only spawned out of wage freezes in the mid-1940s. And employers couldn't give raises. So instead, they offered benefits and they got that tax break. It's never gone away. Well, the world's changed a lot since that time. But also, if 
let's go back to that example. You've got the $25,000 plan and I've got the 12,000. Now you're on your W-2, here's 25,000. You're gonna go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why do I have a $25,000 bill? Oh, well, Carl, you're paying, you know, first dollar on primary care. You're paying for this network. You're paying for these specialized services. You're probably gonna go, wait a minute, take that out. And now we start getting medical inflation worked out. Let me give you the last word on that because we've got a lot more to cover today. So, so now, now your um, diabetes is not being treated. Your high blood pressure isn't being treated and um, your circulatory issues aren't being treated. I don't know how, how you're saving costs. And, and I think that's. Well, no, I mean, if, if, if I no, that's, that's, I, I think that's a, that argument as a, if, if my employer came to me and said, the reason your health plan costs 25000 it's because we're treating your blood pressure and your diabetes, okay, at a price point that you can't get because we pulled the risk. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But I would probably ask, well, what could come out of that plan Absolutely. that I shouldn't be paying for? Yeah. And there's not too many options left. I mean, under under Obamacare, they pretty much have established it. And, and I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, again, because we're looking at what's driving healthcare inflation and it is going up at double and uh, double uh, pace. And it's it's drugs. It's it's high blood pressure. It's diabetes. Um, it's all function of society we live on. But I think what people don't understand is our healthcare system also is a, is unlike almost any other nation in the world fully absorbs the social ills that are pretty unique to this country. Oh, yeah. And they show up in in the emergency room. And um, you look at other countries, I mean the the you don't have anything like this and for every shooting you have where someone's murdered, there's probably 20 people that survive getting shot and that is not cheap. Since we opened the door here talking about the Obamacare Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and that it does mandate much of what goes into the healthcare system, what are some of the top two or three positives that you've seen from the uh, Obamacare Act of 2010 as it's amended today? I would say to me personally, and a lot of people would be kind of shocked by this, but um, the medical loss ratio, I, I really like. And it, by federal law requires that a insurance company spends 85 cents every dollar on patient care. Um, and, you know, there's things that go on in and around that. But in general, um, you got to run everything from marketing to contracting to billing. And, and I think that's what, what I was talking about. Um, insurance companies are very good at it, but that's also driven consolidation because now it's just a function. And the more efficient you are at doing that, the better. But but the temptation is to stop giving service now because that's just a cost item. Yeah. And and my concern is that service is becoming a form of underwriting. If you if you need service, you pr- might have some health issues, and therefore, by not providing service, I am deflecting you to someone else. What are some of the negatives regarding the Affordable Care Act? just dramatically over over promised and um did not um it was i think there was enough energy to do a bipartisan deal and it wasn't and which doomed doomed it long term um but you know we were all supposed to you know i mean the comments were made you're going to save two thousand dollars a year as a family 
Um, you know, you're going to be able to keep your doctor. Um, it's, you know, it, you know, people's costs went up significantly. Their deductibles went up. What, what the government didn't tell you was you're going to save a lot of money, but they're going to keep the savings. Um, and that's how they're going to try to cover additional people. But the whole thought of telling a 27-year-old kid that you should be paying as much as a 58-year-old person who's been smoking and drinking and not working out their whole life is insane. And, and that's part of what, what was put in place was, was a structure. It was so, it was more, it, it just, it, it hit too many political buttons and not enough basic suck it up logic, business, this is, you know, someone's going to lose and you just got to make some of the decisions. And I think that's something that I am trying to point out. It's like, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say any changes in the system are wrong whatsoever. Just be aware that they're, they're not a panacea and what you're, what you're giving up. And it's kind of like capitalism. It's, you know, again, it's, it's got problems, but I haven't seen anything any better than that. And in our case, we're spending a lot of money. I think there's some pretty simple things that we can do going forward and, Hopefully we'll start doing those. I've, I've been deep into this and the shall issue rules, I think, were very, very helpful. And when they talk about more people covered, what we've really done is we've expanded Medicaid, a higher income point for able-bodied adults with no children who used to not be able to get Medicaid. And we know that people that get Medicaid in a well-administered plan do get their preventive care. Again, I think a step in the right direction. And you know, Medicare for people that get to 65, but we have this vast problem in the middle. And that is, you know, people that are not yet eligible for Medicare and are doing too well to be on Medicaid. And particularly if they're gig workers or independents, they're stuck having to buy a mandated policy to your point that might be really appropriate for an older person or a person that hasn't taken care of themselves and they're bearing all that cost. You know, it could be for a single individual, you know, six, $700 a month, and then a 12 or $15,000 deductible. That's a heavy lift. And when people talk about the cost of healthcare, this is not anything mysterious. There's, it's, it's this simple. How many people are there times how long do we live times how much stuff can we do times how often do we do it? it and it's not about unit cost, but that's the multiplication right there that comes out. That's the cost of healthcare. And actually, the number one thing driving the increased cost in healthcare is we're living longer. And, and as we live longer, we're now past the point where cardiac events used to kill us. They don't. We get cancers. Stroke care is so much better. People survive to get a cancer later. That So it, it just plays into that. How many people? How long do we live? And then to many of your early points, there's new technologies and treatments coming on board. Oh, that's more things we can do. That's more cost. Then how often do we do it? That's the simple cost line. I have recommendations on healthcare, and we've had Dean Clancy on who talked about health savings accounts for, for everyone. Um, right. We've had Brian Peters on from a national policy view. We've had Rob Castle who runs a major health network in a multiple state area. Uh, and of course, Nate Kaufman on a couple of times, Chris Allen coming from a, a public health view and taking care of people in real need. And we all kind of come around to what we think healthcare insurance ought to look like today. 
What's your view? How would what would you recommend that the healthcare insurance policy of the United States would be today? If you don't mind, let me just talk on that Medicare point for a minute, if I can sure. drop back. One of the concerns I have about Medicare is you have tremendous numbers of people that retired in 1995 and they're getting 2021 care. Mm-hmm. Um, where did that money come from? And and I think the problem is, 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 you know, politicians are not being honest with people and saying, you know, A, it's expensive and you're not going to get everything. And we need to make some pretty d- tough decisions on some of that. Uh, I remember a, a few years ago, a new drug came out for macular degeneration, which was an injection into the eyeball. And it was literally $100,000 per year. And there was you know, 100,000 Medicare patients that that would apply, it would bankrupt Medicare. What do you do? You don't, if you don't get these injections, you might go blind, but what do you do? Your personal situation, I think, speaks volumes to that. Everybody says, well, we only want proven effective therapies. Sounds good, right? What is it before it's proven? Somebody comes up with a better mousetrap. By definition, it's unproven. And that, you know, going way back, that was one of the chief issues with the Clinton care bill in that it basically wanted to freeze everything in place at 1992, which is ancient history in medical care today, because that was the way they were going to shut out that, that third item on that cost line of how many things we can do and how often we do that. The real savings is, as you've hinted at, it's in personal care. Are we eating right, not smoking, exercising, sleeping, stress-free as much as possible? And again, I'd encourage everybody to listen to the episode with Chris Allen. I want to say it's episode 35, but I wouldn't go that far. We have ways to get people healthy versus taking care of them when they get sick. And that's what I, I feel. And look, I, I will tell you what I my view on healthcare policies we should take. All the tax-supported systems, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, VA, put it in one system, one bureaucracy. If you're a United States citizen... You get it. And if you're a taxpayer, it's, it's a percentage right off your 1040 that goes to pay for that program. Second yeah. item, if the employer wants to offer a, an additional policy above and beyond that, they can do that. But the cost of its compensation. And I would let there be a private market for people that want to go buy additional coverage. Perhaps you're buying access to the Mayo Clinic uh, right. or you're or you know, Sloan Kettering or sure. Cedar Sinai or some other group that says, yeah, they'll they'll take some of those higher risk patients. And then you could sell that as an insurance. And then you wouldn't give up the innovation aspects that have made American healthcare a place where miracles do truly happen every day. We've got the financing side of it messed up as big as you can mess it up, but but you can we have great doctors and hospitals and clinics in the country. So Carl, when you think about the best policies and things and things you'd like to see change, I don't know if this is even a good question, but what's the greater risk that just inertia, you know, doing nothing or a bad policy approach? Or, or is there, you know, if you said there's two things you could change about the healthcare system today, what would they be? You know, to me, we just can't afford to make another mistake. And that that was the problem I had with, with Obamacare. It was, it was like, you know, this has to be bipartisan. So figure out a way to sell it. You have to do it that way um, or it's doomed. 
And we've seen that because we know what's going to happen out there. And so a small number was able to do a, a lot more impact. Um, you know, when, when I when I look at the healthcare system again, I think, you know, again, um, you know, the insurance companies have been the bad guys. And, and I think if you really step back and look at the bigger picture, it becomes pretty intuitive that the bigger picture is a lot different than that. The, you know, a doctor, a hospital, I mean, you know, their pen can write millions and millions and millions of dollars of costs. And, uh, you know, how many times have, you know, clinics, you know, the, the, you know, you find out the spouse is running a separate clinic, their referrals are going into. And so there's a lot of protection on that needs to be there. Is it medically necessary? And so I, I think that type of stuff has been left to insurers. If you start looking at, you know, taking over some of that more federally, it's real easy to not, you know, they, they did the same thing with drugs. You know, the, the drug issue is you say, look, we'll give you, we'll give you the opportunity to write everything off instantly, but you got to drop your patent. Give them something to think about, or we'll give you an extended patent if you focus on these drugs, um, which you have a stronger community need. Um, there's, there's ways to do that. And, and it's just the, the, the shouting has, has gotten out of control. But if you look at the insurance company, you say they are the only one who has got any leverage to to negotiate with a doctor or a hospital. A patient sure doesn't, and the insurance company does. And so, but the insurance, the balance to that is the insurance company has got to keep you at least happy enough as a customer that you come back. Otherwise, you're not worth anything to them staying a year. You have to stay a period of time before you're worth something. The game getting played at larger companies is a total different deal than what's, what's going on at the smaller level. So, um, you know, really kind of a different functionality, but ultimately I think the government needs to grow up and needs to tell people you're not gonna get everything. Healthcare is like outer space. It goes on forever and ever and ever. And I guarantee you, I could look at you in 10 minutes, come up with a whole bunch of stuff that we medically could, could do, but does it have any value, patient value? And I think that's part of where we're, it's hard to get around that. And then you look at the patients or the individuals and you say, some could not care less if they go to the, the doctor down the street and some want to go to Cleveland Clinic. Everybody's different. If you worked hard your whole life and you want to spend it on health care or food or travel, that's your choice. But if you look at some of the other countries like Britain, they tie barred the healthcare system together so that, that you didn't create two different systems. And that's what the concern becomes if you allow people to buy separately, you end up with two different systems. So I do, I do have a lot of, you know, insurance is protection against unforeseen risk. Right. Right out of the blocks, we know that you have basic healthcare functions that should just be paid for and should just be part of a normal, you, and, and again, the feds make data requirements, which you saw a lot of that change. Um, it really drives innovation. So the government can really step in in key spots and go, here's the rules. And the insurance companies will come right around and follow those rules. So whether it's we'll back up the underwriting on this, therefore now your risk is totally gone. So drop the price and you do that at the time. If you want to start taxation, you do that shift all at the same time. Um, but it's got to be bipartisan. It has to be bipartisan. Well, let, let me, first of all, uh, support your view on bipartisanship and being fiercely bipartisan is what the common bridge is all about and getting people to talk together and trying to solve the problem. And, and at the top of this interview, we talked about everybody should get the kind of extraordinary medical care that you're receiving and, yeah. and leading hopefully to an outstanding outcome. That's the goal. 
and to do it at an affordable price. And that both of those are achievable if we continue to actually focus on the problem. But today, there, there really is no constituency for telling people, let's grow up and act responsibly. There's a lot of uh, constituency out there for uh, someone else should pay for it and you should just get whatever you want. I can tell you that this is from years ago, but I was behind a woman in a pharmacy and she's on the phone and she said, hey, I'm at the, and these prescriptions are bagged up. And she said, neither Medicare or Medicaid will pay for grandma's cough syrup. Do you still want me to get them? Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, hey, if it's free to that person, I'll take it. But if, you know, I, it's a question if I have to reach in my pocket and pay for it. And to me, that really sums up the issue right there. So now look at this. So look at how crazy the healthcare system is that has forced you to look down to, to something that's $7.99 because we're not handling the diabetes on the other side of it. Okay. I mean, that, that's so obvious to me that, that you're diminishing returns on going after something like that, as I've seen. When you look at the other end of it, that if you just stopped one diabetic, you just wiped out that whole community's cost of cost syrup for the year. The paying for covered lives, and there's been various forms of, like, you know, capitated payments now for years. The Medicaid systems are doing a good job of this about managing the disease versus reacting to the symptoms and you know, trying to get those ER visits down. You know, Carl, a question I ask all my guests, or nearly all of them, has there been any change to, you know, the issues or your thinking or theories since the onset of the pandemic? Has the pandemic changed anything for you? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I've been a big believer in technology and healthcare. So, you know, again, I, you need to have people where they need, there needs to be people. Um, you need to have technology when there's technology. So I think one of the things the pandemic did is, is it shifted so many people that were reluctant to uh, embrace technology as a communication platform, uh, large numbers have embraced that and, and for medical purposes because they had no choice. Um, there was a period of time when I was getting treatment where nobody would see me. Mm. Um, and then there was a period of time when uh, I couldn't get the vaccination and I had to go get treatments done and I have to be in a room full of cancer patients. And so that was pretty frustrating. So, again, you look at logic, the government's not immune to making dumb decisions, too. And, and so <laughs> that's an understatement. I we, we be, so I, so I, I think we need to be aware when, you know, when, when we look at, you know, seeding control of the government, it tends to be one way. Um, and I'm not an anti-government. They, ha they have a critical role, uh, not only in the financing, but setting the rules because the buck has to stop somewhere. Sure. But, but they just can't they can't cross that line until they put their thumb on the on, on the scale. And that's what they're doing right now. Um, and, and I think that's that's what they need to get off of that and, and be honest about it with the people. Carl, this has been a great conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed having you as a guest. What didn't we cover today, maybe that we should have covered, or any closing thoughts that you've got for our audience on the Common Bridge? Yeah, I, I don't know if you, know, if you put this in or not, but um, my situation with pancreatic cancer, you can't follow what I did and get the outcome I did. It is just, it, it is honestly a miracle. You know, when I look at where I started this, is I, I, can't, I can't come to any other conclusion that there was some other intervention in this Um but, but my point being is, is I, I, I don't want to give false hope to people, 
But the flip side, I'm part of a pancreatic cancer group on Facebook, and, and it is the most depressing thing um, because the outcomes are so terrible that I feel I need to speak up to say it. there is some of us do get some somewhere. And I don't know if it's going to keep going, but I've got two years since diagnosis, and um, that's 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 a miracle. And two guys I've worked with, one from my hometown passed away. He was just diagnosed in December. And another guy was a friend of a friend, which I can't can't believe. He's one of the same doctor as I was at Mayo, um, and he just passed away about three weeks ago. So, you know, even when people talk about Alex Trebek, I mean, he was terminal. Um, they just had him somewhat under control. So he was not a good comparative for people to look at because he was not going to walk out of that alive. So, um, so I, I, you know, my point is, is I want to make sure that people understand that this is, you know, I, I, the thing I always used to compare it to was March Madness is, is uh, you lose one, you're done. That's it. Um, you have to win every single one all the way to the end. And you look at those odds and that's what you face. And, um, but somebody's going to get, make it. Carl, you're you're a brave and a forthright man, and uh, pancreatic cancer has touched my life um, with family members, uh, close friends, uh, business associates, employees, and it is one of those diseases that I hope that our children or grandchildren look back on and go, "Yeah, we used to have that," and yeah. and we, through the grace of God and through the miracle of modern medicine and through all the incredible. Tech, medical technology and people that are serving healthcare that we do come up with a cure. And I hope and I pray that you will be the next one on the cure list. Thank you. This is Rich Helpy today on the Common Bridge with our guest, Carl Albrecht, talking about healthcare, talking about his personal journey, talking about the role of private insurance, talking about his experience trying to serve customers, make sure they're happy with their healthcare and healthcare insurance. Uh, you can read more about Carl at richardhelpy.com. And when you're there, please register for free. We'll see you on YouTube TV at Richard Helpy's Common Bridge channel and on podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. So with our guest today, Carl Albrecht, this is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.